everyone, and welcome to FinTech for the People, the Axion Venture Lab podcast. I'm Matt Shar, operating partner here at Venture Lab, sitting in for AMI this season as we discuss one of the more intriguing topics in FinTech today, Web3, blockchain, and crypto, and their impacts on financial inclusion. As mentioned in our intro episode, this season, we'll be spending time talking with experts across the industry who are working in this space. To kick things off, I am joined by Tim Ran and Ken Ko from Mercy Core Ventures. You'll hear more about their role as a fund within a larger NGO and how they're applying a combination of investing and pilot programs to test the viability of Web3 technologies in moving financial inclusion forward. Tim, Ken, welcome to FinTech for the People. Really great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, thanks for having us. Absolutely. Uh, so to get started, uh, I'd love to hear more around Mercy Corps and how Ventures fits into your, your mandate as a, as a broader organization and where Ventures fits into that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thanks again for having us today. Excited for the conversation. So Mercy Corps is a global nonprofit operating around 40 countries with about 6,000 6, staff. We are essentially the corporate venture capital arm of Mercy Corps although, of course, with a a very specific impact investing lens. So what we are really aiming to do is to catalyze venture-led solutions uh, that increase the resilience of underserved individuals uh, and communities. We were founded in 2015 and to date have invested in about 38 uh, startups across Southeast Asia, uh, Latin America, and Sub-Saharan Africa. And today have had those companies raise around $400 million in uh, following capital. We're you know, relatively active, uh, usually pre-seed and seed stage investors, typically doing anywhere between two to four deals a quarter. And that's split across three main thesis areas. Um, so the first is in adaptive ag and land use, second, inclusive financial services, and the third in what we're calling climate smart systems and services. And so really all of it's kind of with a resilience aim, like how can we look at solutions and services and technologies that allow those living in frontier markets to withstand disruption, stresses and shocks of climate and other, uh, other events um, and plan for the future. So yeah, we'll, we'll get into it, but you know, I'm excited for Ken to join as well because you know, beyond just investing in startups, um, I think similar to AVL, very hands-on post-investment, have a variety of different vehicles and methodologies for how we can engage with, uh, with companies to support their growth. Maybe Ken, if you want to, you feel free to chime in and give a quick intro on, on your side as well. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having us, Matt. On, uh, on, Mars, on our side, we also run a lot of pilots with uh, a mixture of portfolio companies and other startups in the ecosystem. And the reason why we run these pilots is broadly to drive global financial inclusion. And when we're doing this, we do think about how do we responsibly test out bleeding edge technologies for underserved users with particular focus in emerging markets and testing out models that are scalable and sustainable with a true impact potential. And the idea behind these is, especially around the Web3 crypto components, is how do we build up an evidence base which will prove the scalability of blockchain-enabled solutions. There's a lot of hype. There's a lot of talk around how blockchain can be used for good. Uh, And I think a lot of that hype has not really been realized or materialized, especially in emerging markets. And so the mandate that we have is to really test out and deploy some of these technologies to see what models work to create a positive impact for the 1.7 billion people who are underbanked around the world. 
Great. Yeah. And, and we'll, I know we'll, we'll get into more specifics around your approach to Web3 and, and these emerging technologies. Before we get into that, though, I'd, I'd like to ask you a bit around Mercy Corps and, and by extension, Mercy Corps Ventures' perspective on financial inclusion, because I think there's Mercy Corps' perspective on financial inclusion. And if you can maybe get more specific around um, why or what particular areas Mercy Corps historically has focused in uh, in the spaces where there's been financial exclusion and where you see opportunities to to make improvements there. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, as, as you know, since we got started in 2015, when we were originally setting up the fund, we always knew that the financial inclusion space broadly defined would be one that uh, we'd want to focus on as a fund. Uh, Mercy Corps, similar to a lot of uh, development organizations in the 90s, I would say, set up a number of uh, MFIs across uh, Asia, Central Asia, and Eastern Europe as well. And so I think that we always knew that there was kind of a rich history of work and programmatic talent to kind of draw from. We knew, of course, the impact as well as the barriers faced by individuals, communities, and, and systems as they are trying to access financial services that could improve their lives broadly defined. And so that's to say from the day one, we, we knew that was kind of the crux of what we'd be investing in. And I think that was also defined by the you know, team around us. Uh, Scott and our team had originally come into Mercy Corps working with some of our work with Safaricom and M-Pesa back in 2008, 2009. Uh, had managed a lot of our MFI investments in portfolio and, and managed a, a lot of work we we're doing in microfinance in the Pacific Northwest. So it's going to say it was kind of embedded in the DNA of the team and also embedded in you know, where we thought there could be impact. Really progressed at a point now where after we started making a number of fintech investments and then you know, investments where embedded fintech was really core to the solution to the point where something that was useful for the business but really could be crucial between the end users or end uh, partners' lives being uh, able to withstand shocks and stresses that were coming more and more frequently we're seeing across our fintech and non-fintech portfolio. So I think that that really was to some degree a light bulb. I don't know if it was a one moment or just like a slow cascade um, and then you know, exacerbated by COVID where we saw this as well. But we really, I would say, evolved our fintech thesis to look at what we're calling inclusive fintech, which is recognizing we live in a world where shocks, stresses, and crises hinder communities, that we really need to look at different types of models that deliver a suite of financial services and products, usually embedded in other types of platforms or, or services that you know, essentially allow these individuals and households and systems to respond to shocks quickly, to bounce back from shocks quickly, as well as to build up an asset base ahead of them. I think what we see in the markets, and again, this is not necessarily news to you, Matt, or ABL, but there's just so many indications now that you know economies, from a macro perspective, economies that lack insurance at all levels, not just the micro layer, but like meso and macro, even sovereign side, all the data points and all the research points that these economies take you know, multiple years longer to bounce back from a major climactic event, which has all these ramifications you know, downstream on communities, individuals. Simultaneously, when we look at the availability of digital payments in certain markets, that allows, like during a crisis, more of a safety net that allows, again, individuals to bounce back, to reinvest in their businesses, so forth. Small producers, of course, in agriculture, we know if they don't have a suite of financial services, including savings, insurance, as well as credit, once again, these stresses and shocks are coming more and more frequently 
are going to prevent them from uh, really you know, securing where they've gotten to or pushing ahead. And so the way we've looked at it is that all the investments we're, we're excited about are really responding to this. They're, you know, whether they overtly talk about it or it's just kind of embedded in how they're thinking about building the business or the DNA of the founders, they are you know, looking at how digital financial services can reduce the cost barriers for reaching the last mile. And I think that, again, what we're seeing now is after that first wave of kind of fintech over you know, 2010 to say 2015, 2018, all the different pieces of kind of the fintech stack are built so that now you can look at as a new entrepreneur building this space, uh, combining those or being kind of the customer interface or embedding that within your core offering. And so we look at this space in terms of how can you kind of connect those dots? How can you embed it within the models that have that kind of tech touch nexus with users? And then once again, like how does that look at really increasing the resilience of that user, that system, that household? That's the way we kind of approach it broadly. It's gone from just kind of that looking at specific enterprises or companies and saying, okay, how are they providing financial services more to, how are they interacting with the system, how are they really interacting with the cash flows of that individual or that household or that SME, whatever it is, and how does that build really a more inclusive model? Great. So, so there's definitely an interesting evolution, I think, in, in discovering what exactly financial inclusion means and, and how it, it actually plays out in, in these markets. So along those lines, as you've been along this journey, somewhere along the way, these technologies around uh, you know, and seeing how blockchain becomes a little bit more mainstream and we're starting to see it applied in a variety of different types of applications. And despite the just the cacophony of different sorts of voices around what that looks like, be curious to hear for you all, your specific journey into these technology mandate for financial inclusion. I think usually when people answer this question, there's a little bit of a jockeying to say how early you got into Bitcoin or something else. <laughs> and so... Uh, I, I, I'm not one of those people who uh, read the white paper in you know 2010 and was like, yeah, this is this is it. Um, like I'm gonna do it. <laughs> Question of did you buy the dip or not, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so you know, I, I think I, I actually think uh, you know Scott, the other partner of the fund, his story really resonates. I mean, he he got into this super early. I think he says 2015 when he recognized the need to pay uh, some of our interns in Kenya. And obviously, you know, back then, PayPal, as I believe, was not active there. You know, after looking at a variety of means, it just became clear that paying them in Satoshis uh, was quick and easy and relatively low cost. And I think that clicked in his mind, you know, between all the digital financial services work he was doing with Mbesa and other contexts. And then, you know, the emerging kind of blockchain universe, DeFi, was not yet invented, I guess, or that movement. Like, wow, this could be really big. Um, and so... That really started his journey. And I say that that is how it kind of came into our fund to some extent. That, that was the initial infection, if you will. <laughs> it was, you know, a personal touch point with, wow, this could be really valuable. I see the tangible use case of it. And this really kind of aligns with, you know, where Mercy Corps had been interacting with digital financial services. And so that was the initial impetus, I think, for us. It was like kind of a personal journey, I think, for like many in the crypto space. And then, you know, we were really fortunate to start building a team and a tribe around this to, I'd say, cautiously explore it. Uh, between, say, 2019 and 2021, where we started to partner with some of the major protocols. We started to partner and start to see more and more uh, startups that are integrating elements of crypto and DeFi in its early years and kind of the back end of what they're developing. And I think that got more of the team on the investment side starting to, to merge between 
you know, where all of us on, I guess, you know, any investment team, we're all coming from different places. We're to some degree generalists, but we're specialists. And I think from my end, much more coming from food systems, ag, space, although, you know, quite a bit in fintech. For me, it was always about the user journey. Like, how is this going to find a match where, you know, a user doesn't have to download MetaMask and be crypto native and all these different things. I was highly skeptical of that. And so it wasn't until I think we saw, or I saw at least, fintechs and then, you know, embedded fintech building with DeFi tools that merged kind of the best of what we've learned and how do you acquire a customer, how do you engage with them and like actually find a value proposition for them. It wasn't until it clicked. And I, I think for, for our fund, uh, really the, the seminal moment of this, because from an investment side, as you, you know, probably surmised, Matt, I mean, it's hard to get back a lot of these uh, protocols as an impact fund, right? They're still super early, not proven in the field, et cetera. Until we had the means to kind of pilot with organizations and partner and actually test out the application, is when we actually got to go deep and really understand what works, what doesn't, where are the barriers, what are the risks, and then helping us define our risk paradigm and where we want to play. So there, I'll hand it over to Ken. Maybe you can talk a little bit more about the history of the piloting side, but I feel like that was really what allowed us on the investment side, at least, to really seriously consider investments in the space. And we'll be right back. And welcome back to the show. Yeah, and if it, it, that's a really great transition as well, Ken, because I, I, I'd love to also hear when you begin to talk about this piloting you've been doing with some of these protocols, also how the history of testing and proving out some of these models has been sort of embedded in the DNA of ventures. So is this something that has only popped up, this piloting approach, only with your DeFi approach, or is this something that's been embedded in, in your entire investment philosophy since the beginning? I think similar to AVL, right, we always had a hypothesis that, you know, as kind of corporate venture capital fund applied for a development organization, that Mercy Corps, you know, $600 million a year in programming, it's, 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 it's based in 40 countries around the world, 5,000 like experts on the ground and so forth. This could be intensely valuable to startups. And so I think our hypothesis when we started the fund was that as a fund attached to a global organization, how do we bring all those resources and partnerships and advisors and so forth to bear to support these startups to have uh, somewhat of an unfair advantage or to at least test different approaches to go to market, scaling, creating impact and so forth. And so I, I'd say from the earliest days, we had explored different types of partnerships and pilots between those in our networks, whether they're uh, payment service providers major MNOs, what have you. We're always hustling to find ways to help our companies to essentially, like any good investor, frankly, right, uh, to, to forge catalog partnerships that will allow them to expand in new markets, develop new product suites, whatever it is. It wasn't really until, again, we, I think we had really gone through a number of iterations and discovered what works in that, like how do you do proper A-B testing, how do you align the interests of different stakeholders, which is the crucial bit that we had kind of packaged up I'd say kind of our methodology around it. That was at the time, again, when we were, I'd say, pretty excited about, this was, I'd say, probably pre-Web3, but 2018, 2019, when we looked at, you know, the emerging blockchain and blockchain derivative technology space, and we thought this could be a really powerful set of tools. But, you know, again, from a user perspective, they're just not, there's not much deployment in emerging markets. So we had, a, you know, we had a lot of assumptions or hypotheses around where they can be beneficial, but not many use cases. And so we said, well, how can we take the history of how we've forged these partnerships, worked with different startups to really test these out? How can we bring in partners who really understand the UI, UX? How do we be very articulate in, in impact management, understanding whether something's impactful? And I think most importantly, from a signaling perspective, how do we design 
something where if it is successful, and even if it's not, frankly, that can act as a, a signal that allows for the commercial expansion of something. So making sure it's not just a pilot for pilot's sake, but like if this works, it actually could, you know, scale and be core of the business model and, and uh, inspire copycats. So it was right around then we started doing a lot of uh, partnering with different protocols. And it was at that point we kind of, again, Alpin originally on our team and then Ken coming in a little bit later started to say, okay, well, here's what a piloting function could look like, and here's how we actually develop different touch points within the broadly defined blockchain and blockchain derivative technology industry, if you will, and, and see how we can test out these technologies. From there, like, just thinking about what are some of the building blocks in the Web3 universe that have the real potential to scale and deliver meaningful impact. And I think when we go through that exercise and just being quite strategic, distilling like what is like the signal from the noise. You can there are some things that are really here to stay, right? You have like the blockchain, the power of a blockchain in its immutability and its transparency and its traceability. Like that has tremendous potential for use cases around supply chains and traceability. It has use cases in combining multiple off-chain data sources like via oracles, uh, decentralized ID services, proof of reputation, proof of skills, things like that. You have stable coins, which, you know, for everything that's happening around stable coins in the last little while, like they are still a valuable inflation hedge. They're super powerful when it comes to transfers, payments, remittances. As a cash-in, cash-out vehicle it's it's the, the rails are there and it makes uh, it facilitates the the flow of funding cross border between peers all all those transfers are facilitated and then tokens fungible or non-fungible this is a powerful building block it sets up it allows decentralized networks to be created powered and run you set up incentives uh, you motivate the right behavior through token incentives tokens allow you to fundraise in ways that really weren't possible before assets can be tokenized this is tokenization it's a mixture of course smart contracts and and uh, fungible or non-fungible tokens but this is a way for for us to really change the paradigm around how People get access to assets, how we fractionalize, uh, reducing settlement costs, increasing automation in terms of whether you get paid out today versus in nine months time. There's just so much that's happened if we leverage this technology in a smart, impactful way. And so we've been building pilots, like specifically testing different theses and different theories around what can be useful. So just to give one or two examples, we've run a pilot for smallholder farmers in Kenya which was testing moving crop insurance policies into smart contracts. So the historical issue here is that the adoption rate for insurance for smallholder farmers is about 3% in sub-Saharan Africa. And the reason why nobody wants to buy these insurance policies is because the payouts are relatively quite low. Payouts are super slow. So again, this is like months and years to get paid out any, anything that you're owed. And there's no transparency in the process. And so through our pilots, we ran two phases of this. And, and so the first, and, and combined the, the number of policies that were sold is around 25,000. But we were able to, by, by migrating the policy data on chain, by incorporating rainfall data and, uh, and tapping into M-Pesa and mobile payments, we were able to increase the coverage amount because now we're cutting out a lot of operational costs and, and staff time that was otherwise there from a manual perspective. You were able to set up instant payouts. So again, rather than weeks, months, years, it's automated and it can happen both at mid-season and end line. So customers are so the farmers are getting their 
funds at a much quicker rate and then they can reinvest that capital into their land or food or whatever they need for their families. And then the transparency that comes with being on chain, it leads to more trust. And we found that this was particularly valuable among female farmers because female farmers, I suppose, are they find it harder to go to their insurance broker and say, you know, where's my payout? Where, when am I going to get this? But by being on chain, they can just simply dial a number on their feature phone and they're able to see the status of their policy and when or whether they can expect to receive a payout from that policy. So that's one that we ran in Kenya. We did another one in Colombia. This is using stable coins for remittances for Venezuelan migrants. So USD stable coins, which were used as remittances uh, through a digital wallet, stablecoin. So of course, this being Venezuela, it provides an inflation hedge in a hyperinflationary market. So just as context, uh, Venezuela, the overall inflation in the past uh, six, seven years is like 54 million percent, like over 30 percent month over month. So it's just an astronomical rate. And by having stable coins pegged to the U.S. dollar, you offer a very strong inflation hedge for anyone who doesn't want to see their savings uh, rapidly deplete. And on top of that, there's a direct off-ramp connected to Venezuelan banks, so which minimizes the hassle and any onboarding, offboarding challenges for non-crypto natives. So just really making sure that the UX is there to support uh, adoption. Yeah, those examples, I think, are, are really tangible. So thanks for sharing those. I want to dive in a bit more on some of these pilots, because I think one of the criticisms, and I can be one that attests to this, is that Back to the previous thing that Tim was saying is that we're still early, right? Which I think one of the one of the, the catchphrases of, of crypto and Web3. And I'm wondering, as you think about these pilots you're establishing and seeing that there are many ways in some of these adoptions of Web3, there's a temporal upswing, but then it's responded with, with a crash. Like we look at Celsius, we look at a lot of these stablecoin networks, we look at the yield farming, and all of them seem to fall apart after a couple of years of running. So when you begin to think about bringing these pilots into the mainstream and adopting them across broader populations and, and implementing them in a way that has lasting value, what do you see as the risks? What are the things that need to be addressed as you move from pilot phase to early investment to full mainstream adoption? And, and where do you see some of the hiccups that need to be resolved there? From our perspective, when we set up our pilots, we like to say that we're setting up responsible pilots, meaning that our pilot participants will never be in a worse off position from being a part of our pilots than they would otherwise. So I think that's like the baseline, like the bare minimum that we set in terms of our expectations when we design these pilots. I think you're right in that a lot of these protocols initiatives have left a pretty sour taste in the in the mouth of the average bystander or person who's just you know passively involved in the crypto world. But I think the way that we are approaching this is that there's a difference between the financialization and the speculation that's happening in the crypto markets and then the underlying technology, uh, the web through power, the blockchains, tokens, token economies and things like that. And so I think focusing on the technology and focusing on the actual building blocks that have come out that have real world value, that's where we're able to build up truly sustainable and long lasting use cases that will you know, endure and actually deliver value to, to the target populations that we have in mind across emerging markets. And so I think that is just the, the high level macro view in terms of how we are approaching both piloting and also the entire Web3 space as it is. And so I think building off of that general ethos, when we set up these pilots, we are trying to be quite strategic around 
what are the initiatives that we think will scale and what are the initiatives that, are, that we think will actually have a sustainable business model behind it, right? We don't want to be running pilots just for the sake of it and we don't want to be running pilots for years because that's, that's just not an efficient mechanism for us to be involved within. And so I think that's where, as part of our evaluation criteria, we need to get quite, um, we do get quite detailed in terms of how we select the pilots and in terms of how we design it, because we just want to make sure that the end impact to the user is quite clear and it's something that will be sustaining once, uh, once the pilot ends. Tim, do you want to jump in when, in terms of how that transitions to the investment thesis? We have a similar ethos, so that we can, we inherently with any investment accept risk to participants. I mean, if we have to be honest, right, whether it's blockchain enabled or, or not, if you know, a neobank uh, we invest in fails and potentially puts, uh, you know, user funds at risk or if there's fraud or other things like we do what we can in our diligence to under determine these, understand what the risks are and be eyes wide open around what we can accept and mitigate control or not control. But yeah, certainly, I mean, as all the examples you mentioned, the crypto universe presents unique challenges and unique uh, levels of speculation and then frankly complexity that I think for any investor, it is very difficult, especially in these early days, to fully get a grasp on, right? Um, a lot of the uh, investment opportunities we see often have very complex uh, financial engineering in the backbone for you know, how they're doing all sorts of unique swaps for Bitcoin across local markets or uh, using futures in order to move and create kind of synthetic stable coins across markets, all these different types of things. And one of the fears I have from the investment side is that it can be, there's a lot of money here chasing uh, kind of stories, and it can prop up some of these protocols and projects and companies utilizing crypto that don't necessarily have the in-house expertise to manage it. Um, and then simultaneously as investors, I think from a responsibility standpoint, we may not be uniquely equipped to really understand you know, the risks they're presenting to their end customers. And this is, I think, the one of the issues we'll see in a lot of emerging markets is some of these things you know, perform or don't perform during the bear market, right? Uh, and start to put, you know, users' savings at risk as they have in you know, many markets over the world. So we, of course, try to avoid that at all costs. Um, you know, we are uh, following very stringent guidelines around how we assess the risks to uh, users um, and their principle. And again, our firm principles, we want to do no harm. Don't want to leave people worse off as a result of interacting with our companies or otherwise. But at the same time, trying to find where we can push boundaries in a responsible way, manage investments, manage risks around it. I do think the moment we're in is, and again, this will be another thing that I think a lot of folks in the crypto world would say, it's probably a healthy correction. You know, Obviously, we're seeing all risk assets, um, tech stocks, ETFs down significant levels, you know, down to the 2020 lows. You know, PE ratios are coming down more sane levels. We are you know, firmly, especially in the crypto space, uh, in a bear market. And I think that's going to sort out a lot of the hype as it has, you know, before. And really, hopefully, at least in this perspective and lens we're taking, reward the builders that, you know, again, are really building thoughtful products and services uh, for users that we care about. Um, so I think we're optimistic that, you know, as Ken said, there are good building blocks of the technology there and good use cases. In my opinion, uh, this might not be totally shared. I'd be, I'd be curious if you think, Ken, I think a lot of the best use cases are kind of invisible to the end user. And that the, you know, the, the, especially in the Web3 world, the projects, protocols, companies building in that space are very thoughtful about the fact of 
where their technology layer interacts with uh, all sorts of other partners and interacts with distribution channels for whatever they're doing uh, or interacts with end users um, in a very different way. So I think we're entering kind of a new phase of probably user-centered design proximity being really the critical enabler of what separates you know, the next iteration of all these technologies from you know, this past few years. To touch on that point a bit more, I think we've acknowledged that there's a little bit of what I call a Web3 premium. I think a lot of a lot of founders who are building something with some sort of blockchain layer, like peanut buttered on top, even if it's not fundamental to their to their actual business case, are finding themselves getting an investor premium. We see funds that are becoming Web3 focused. And so I, I suppose I'm curious about when when you're evaluating these companies, and I was even thinking about some examples around you know, using smart contracts for insurance adoption in Kenya, how you're balancing out this, whether or not this Web3 layer is something that's absolutely essential and central to the business model, or whether or not it's something that, that you think is just additive because someone realizes that it's, that it's hyped up. So how do you, you know, even as, as, as investors, as you evaluate whether or not a business model actually can be innovative without this new layer of technology that adds complications that becomes more complex from an engineering perspective that that eliminates traditional underwriting models where do you find the balance in, in all of that as you're looking at companies and talking with founders i'd like to say hopefully we're an advantage in in not an advantage but like as a team we have an array of perspectives on the technologies right which i think is super healthy and good um you know sometimes when i talk to very crypto-centric, Web3-focused funds, they'll deeply understand the technical aspects. They could do better technical DD, honestly, than we could ever, right? Because a lot of them have come builders and operators out of this space. However, I think their blind spot is within this kind of space of like really libertarian excitement and like decentralization and these digital communities can take over the world is, is really a lack of like, I think, a clear pathway to, to people really using this and a clear understanding of like what real incentives and like kind of the hurdles to get there. So I do feel like there's kind of a schism within like those who are very web focused and then those who are kind of moving into it. Um, and I think across our team, we have, we're at different like learning journeys, I'd say, of like how we assess these things. But so fundamentally, I think we, as a whole, and, and again, I think similar to any investment fund, we're always grappling with any sort of new innovation because it doesn't exactly match kind of the thesis we have, which is a living, breathing document. But, you know, something will come in and blindside us and we have to kind of grapple with it. And so I think we, as a whole, look at opportunities and always kind of ground it in the user experience. And does this really meet a pain point for a smallholder farmer? You know, and, and again, it's great to talk about how, well, you know, what if a smallholder could join a DAO and like participate their extra income for this shared pool of risk insurance and all these different things? I mean, it sounds really wonderful on paper, but again, the reality, knowing that user journey and, and having worked with portfolio companies and directly with farmers and other constituents for many years, like we, we know that that kind of, that leap is, is quite far away. And so I think it allows us to separate kind of the fluff from what makes sense. And I think it also allows us to for those kind of infrastructure layer companies that say are you know creating maybe a tokenization scheme or a web three scheme in the positive term that supports the kind of web two companies to do their job better you know say like risk pool for insurance where you know a pula or a micro insurance company is is still purely a web two company you could say uh, but they're deriving the benefit they can from web three and maybe blocking their users from anything that would be um, you know potentially negative or speculative. 
That's where I think we can kind of see that perspective rooted in the persona and individual. And where does technology sit, kind of infrastructure layer, and where might it, you know, over time actually work with the end user? Um, and so I think that's the way we kind of sort it out. Certainly from an investment perspective, you know, valuations are coming back down to earth, generally speaking. You know, I think we're, we're seeing, generally speaking, things are coming a little bit down from what we've seen. Web3 is still pumped up just because there's so much money floating around it. But we're not, you know, we try to avoid FOMO. We have a very specific paradigm of what we want to achieve. And we don't necessarily, you know, have to jump on the next hot bandwagon uh, for, for a particular kind of Web3 protocol. So yeah, I'm happy to talk more about some examples of Web3 companies we have invested in and why and, and you know, how we assess them. But yeah, I think we're, we're pretty, I'd say, like optimistic, but we're also very realistic about where things are at and what we're comfortable investing at this stage. When we do screen from pilots and I think deals as well, the question does come as like, why does this actually need Web3? I think that's, that's one of the first questions that we'll ask ourselves when we see one of these protocols or solutions that are, that are supposedly tapping into the benefits of Web3. And so I think that's always something that's front and center in our minds when we're evaluating this. And I think on the, perhaps on the other side of that, you know, you do hear like the counter argument, which is always like, couldn't this just be solved by like Web2? Like, can't you just like put this on a database and like plug a few APIs in? And in some cases, I think the answer is maybe, like maybe that is true. Although I think then, then it comes to two things. One is like, why hasn't it been done already in that case, right? Like why, if, if we think that it could potentially be solved that way, like why hasn't it? And that often leads into questions around like, perhaps it's just too complex, like the bringing in a myriad of data sources together that are a mixture of online, offline, and actually trying to synthesize it and have multiple partners contribute to one shared database and have a decentralized ownership of it. Like imagine building that and trying to maintain that set of APIs. Like it's, it's very complex. And so you could, in theory, imagine it as like one singular database, but in many worlds, it's it's probably not the most intuitive way that you would want to do it. And then I think, yeah, the additional component here is that by building certain things on chain, you do unlock additional benefits that you wouldn't get from Web2. Now, of course, are those benefits necessarily value adding? That depends on a case-by-case basis, right? But in some instances, having the immutability, having the transparency, having that like just the full chain transparency, it does add specific value. And I think, for example, the insurance instance is a pretty clear one because there's a clear moral hazard in how insurance premiums work. Anything that is not paid out is therefore profit for the insurer. So having an, an indisputable source of truth that everyone can point to actually mitigates a lot of these potential misaligned incentives. I was just going to add, I mean, I think where I've been really personally drawn as we've explored different use cases is two things. One is blockchain as a service broadly, or, you know, kind of DeFi as a service. So, you know, essentially these modules that sit in the back end that allow other fintechs that want to derive certain benefits from the DeFi universe to interact with it in kind of a white level way. So we've made a few investments in that space, uh, like one in Mojo Labs, you know, which, which essentially just allows for plug and play functionality for that. I think that'll be a growing space we want to monitor, and, and especially those that you know are doing great work in different regions and figuring out the on and off ramps and, and so forth. And the other area that we've done a pretty big deep dive into is like Web3, in theory, it's still early to say, resolves, like Ken was saying, 
potentially a lot of the issues around coordination of data and different actors and the transparency and all of that, as well as incentives and all of that. And so we've reviewed and made a few investments in the alternative biodiversity, carbon credit, water credit space, uh, because that is you know, essentially a, a pretty broken system whereby many actors have to contribute data, analyze that data, and then ideally provide incredibly trustworthy, transparent uh, indication of what that data projects in terms of carbon baseline and, and sequestration and so forth. And so, you know, we, we think there's certain areas where Web3 has a clear advantage and we see a lot of builders and talent, most importantly, really flock into it, despite all the ups, up volatility and upturn, downturns, all these things. Like some of the greatest minds are really being drawn into this space, particularly around climate and crypto, particularly around, I think, blockchain as a service and traceability. And so we are, I'd say, pretty bullish that we're going to see, you know, more of these communities get set up where, yeah, it, it starts to become kind of obvious, like, oh, this is a much, you know, improved way of how the system works. Well, Ken and Tim, there are a lot of things we want to try covering. <laughs> There's so much more in this space, but just want to thank you for taking a bit of time today and chatting through this. Really grateful for your perspective. So thank you again. No, thank you. Always happy to. So much more to go into. <laughs> That's it for this week's episode. You can learn more about Mercy Corps Ventures at mercycorps.org or on Twitter at MC Social Venture. And as another quick reminder, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Axion V Lab. Finally, don't forget to check out our upcoming FinTech for Inclusion Summit at fintechforinclusionsummit.com. Tune in in two weeks, where I'll be joined by Sam Iyab from Goldfinch and Warbur Labs. We'll see you then. And ultimately, like really just starting with the vision, really, is there's a shared vision for helping drive financial inclusion around the world and really helping to reformat the debt capital markets because it's just too insanely hard to get access to debt capital, which in most places, especially south of the equator, or as I call them, global south, is the fuel that's needed to help spur economic growth, especially when you're thinking about this from you know, bottoms up perspective. Mm -hmm.